message, different kind of a passage today. It's not really a Thanksgiving passage. Instead, we're wrapping up our month uh, emphasis on missions today. And I'd like to focus today on why missions is absolutely vital. And I don't mean vital for the church. I mean vital for the larger world. If we're going to step into that need as part of Christ's church, that means whether that means we're going to be involved in missions overseas or more uh, in our own country, we have to be clear, not simply on what Jesus did, but on how what he did, how his actions meet the very need that modern people have. One of the ways to understand what that means in our context, in our modern world, is to recognize that you and I live in a time that is marked by moral confusion. And by moral confusion, I don't mean that people are unsure of themselves, that they're not certain what they believe. Instead, I think this time is just the opposite. One of the hallmarks of our age is that the vast majority of people now are absolutely convinced that they're right. Convinced that what they think and feel is so morally right that it cannot be challenged, that it has to be affirmed by everyone else. And so it's not merely tolerated as an opinion, but that it has to be affirmed, approved of, as a legitimate expression of morality. We live in a time that believes that because you can discuss morality, because you can debate various moral positions, because it's possible to hold various moral opinions, we believe then that morality is not set in stone, that instead it's up for grabs, and that you can make up your own moral preferences And that any moral preference that you come up with is just as legitimate as any other. And so you and I have this call into missions in a time of moral make-believe. A time that is radically different in our society than it was just even a few decades ago. And let me just take an aside already this morning. If the world is purely the result of natural evolutionary forces... If the way that we all got here is just the accidental byproduct of physics and chemistry that comes together and produces biology, well, then moral confusion just makes sense. If we're all here by pure random chance, you really can believe anything that you want to believe. You're completely free to imprint your own ideas and your own thoughts onto life, and no one can say anything different to you. Because in that kind of a world, there is no given moral order that you and I are designed to fit into. Instead, you can do whatever you want as long as you're strong enough to get away with it. And all you have to do in order to live in that kind of world is just accept that it's not going to end well for everyone because there is no justice in that kind of world. It's a, a world without a moral order doesn't have a thing as justice. Instead, justice is what? It's just another construct, just another opinion one among many that people might choose to believe, but it's an idea that has no more validity than, say, injustice. And instead, the only thing in a random chance world that matters is survival, because nothing in a world that's accidentally here has any intrinsic meaning. And so in that kind of a world, only the strong survive or thrive while they're still strong. And so in that kind of a world, injustice, oppression, those are what? They're just baked into the system. They're not a bug. They're a feature of that kind of world. And that's one of the ways you can tell that that world can't be true. 
<laughs> because we all know internally that it's just not okay to mistreat people or to be mistreated ourselves. You hear the cry for justice constantly in this world. Why is that? We know that every human life counts from every ethnicity, every social strata. We know that no one is dispensable or disposable. And we know that that's not just a nice feeling that some of us happen to have that we personally like. It's not a personal opinion that is optional. But we know that that is true for everyone. We know that everyone should feel that way. We know that slavery, racial discrimination are not ever okay. We know that even if the law or the moral consensus of the time allows them, then those laws and societal norms are what? They're not an other opinion. They're wrong. They're morally wrong. And we all say that they're morally wrong. They're unjust. We know that taking advantage of a child sexually is not a preference, but it's a perversion. We know that sex trafficking is not ever one acceptable industry among many. We know that cannibalism is not simply disgusting to a certain group of people, but that it is morally wrong for everyone. We each have that sense of justice inside that said there are things that are just not okay for anyone to do at any time. And that evaluation that says they're wrong is not just my personal feeling. It's not an opinion that's optional if you feel differently. But that evaluation is true and binding on everyone. Now, why do we have that sense that we just can't talk ourselves out of? Why do we have that sense? Why do we say that someone, what someone did is wrong, morally wrong, and that they're not just expressing a different valid opinion? It's because we know deep inside that we're not here accidentally. Look at the way you live, and it will tell you what you really believe. We know for certain that you can't just do whatever you want. That there is a given moral order that we were made to fit into. Which means that there is a personal being behind that order. A orderer, if you will, who has goals and intentions for us. So that the lives that we live are good for us personally, and that they're good for us as a society. And that tells you then that moral confusion will not ever lead to society flourishing. But if you want a society that thrives, one that is good and just for everyone in it, if you want a society that doesn't just cater to a certain group that is well-placed or, or powerful enough to drive their own agenda, if you want that kind of society, whether we're talking about a nation, a neighborhood, a family, you have to have moral clarity. A clarity that fits into the kind of moral order that reflects the kind that God desires himself. And so, for instance, you cannot be a spouse, a just spouse who creates a good society to be in. You cannot be that kind of spouse unless you know clearly what a man is, what a woman is, how they're different, and how they're supposed to go together. When God created human beings, male and female, he really did mean us to be male and female. And he meant us to live into our maleness and into our femaleness rather than to try to flatten out the differences that he hardwired into us. Does society come along and confuse that? Absolutely. But confusing what God has done 
will not lead to working better together. Won't lead to that in the larger society. Certainly will not lead to a marriage that reflects him. More than that, you cannot have a good marriage unless you know what the point of being married is. Because if you don't, then you'll settle for being comfortable together or for getting what you can out of each other with the minimum amount of friction or for this constant battle over whose agenda carries the day. Or take parenting. You can't raise a child unless you know what a parent is, what a child is, how they're different, and what the goal is. If you're not clear on those things, then what you do in any situation will depend primarily on how you feel in that moment rather than on what will benefit an eternal being made in the image of God. Or think about what you do all day. If you don't know what the purpose of work is and how to evaluate work, you'll end up doing too much or you'll end up doing too little. You'll be consumed by it or you'll try to avoid it. Without moral clarity, you will give work your own definition or you'll just absorb the one from your society. And each person will end up becoming their own judge evaluating their own definition, the one they feel most comfortable with, which will only increase the moral confusion in our society. Now, you all live in the same world that I do, and you know that all of those things and many, 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 many more are up for debate. And so we are finding ourselves increasingly living in times that you could describe in the book of Judges, times where everyone does what is right in his or her own eyes. And as you read the end of the book, you realize that that led to horrific injustice and social disintegration. And that's why this morning, as we think about the need of missions for our world, we're looking at Isaiah chapter 6, even though we've looked at this within the last year. We're looking at it because God emphasizes four things in this passage that bring moral clarity to us, that if we will get on board with him, will drive us into mission, into this world, and that will frame the message that we take on mission. Those four things are, first, the holiness of God, second, the unholiness of human beings, third, the judgment of God, and fourth, God's mercy. I should say now uh, at the outset that I'm leaning heavily on a conversation I had with a friend for today's outline. I don't know if he ever preached on Isaiah 6, probably did. I haven't checked. If he has, and you go out and you find us, our outlines are probably very similar. I'm leaning on that conversation. I'm also leaning on what Paul Tripp has written in his book, Do You Believe? Especially as he works through Isaiah 6. I would highly recommend that book to you if you've not read it. It takes a series of doctrines, puts them in very simple language to understand, then shows the implications of them for us in our lives. That's Paul Tripp, do you believe? So four things today on our outline. God is holy, we are not. God's holiness judges our unholiness, and yet he's also merciful. Let's dive in. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train, or maybe better translated there, the hem of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God has decided 
to show Isaiah something about himself. Something that Isaiah never saw, regardless of how many times he'd been to the temple. Something that he would have absolutely no way of knowing unless God voluntarily shared this with him. Now think for a moment. Think about all the things that God could have said about himself. Things that would have been true. Things like, you know, Isaiah, I think, I think thunder's really cool. Or, I like making daisies. I like making millions upon millions of daisies. I like making that many stars. I like making that many galaxies. God could have tied himself to something in creation that would have shown his greatness. And he doesn't. Instead, he reveals to Isaiah that he is holy, holy, holy. It's the only time in the Old Testament that the word holy is repeated three times in a row. That's significant. Because repeating it like this is a grammatical way of creating technically what's called a superlative. That's a category that's unmatched by anything else. The category here is holiness. It's a category that is not just at the extreme of what you can imagine. It's one that goes beyond what you can imagine. And so God is not just holy. Not ordinary holy like you may have seen, that like God says his people are supposed to be. And he's not holy, holy, a special kind of holy that you haven't seen, but you might be able to imagine what that is. But God is holy, holy, holy. Holy in a way that is beyond your imagination. Because it's outside of this world, outside of the universe. It's holiness that exists in a completely different category One that exists all on its own. Think, okay, but what does holy mean? It's a combination of a couple things. One, it means that you are separate, cut off, distinct from all else, distinct from everything else that God has made in his creation. It means that God is not anything like his creation. He's, number one, separate from his creation. Number two, he's pure, completely pure. He is in a moral category all his own. You have never met anyone like him before. He is outside all of your concepts of what purity and morality are like. And this triple holiness is at the essence of who he is. It's not an aspect of himself. It's not something that you can separate out and then consider on its own. But holiness lies at the heart of all the rest of him. At the heart, so that God is holy in everything that he thinks, holy in everything that he says, everything that he does, everything that he desires. He is holy in his justice, holy in his goodness, holy in his anger, holy in his love, holy in his patience, holy in his joy. He is holy, holy, holy. Holiness is at the heart of who he is. And holiness completely escapes our ability to put words to it. (laughs) Did you notice how little Isaiah can actually say about God? He lets us know that God is sitting on a great throne, that he is above every other kind of ruler. We know that he is now in charge of all that there is. And Isaiah can let us know that the hem of his garment fills the temple. And then Isaiah bumps up against the limit of what he can say. Isaiah's words cannot rise above the hem of God's garment. God is that high. He's that outside our experience. 
That's where I feel myself struggling this morning as well. How do you use words to describe someone who is beyond your words? Someone whose very nature is outside the known world, outside the created universe, because he's the one who created it. I can't get there with my words. And I'm in good company because Isaiah couldn't either. And yet God in his holiness is vitally important to you and to me. Why? Because the whole earth is full of his glory. You live surrounded by what you cannot put words to. You live surrounded by the fullness and the richness of the glory of God. There is no place you can go, no experience that you can have that does not encounter the glory of God. God's glory is not limited. It's not restricted to a house of worship or to a geographical area of the world. It's not limited to a certain time of day or day of the week. Instead, his glory is the context in which you live your life. His glory is in the food that you eat. It's in the air that you breathe. It's in the body that you walk around in. It's in the people and the things that you encounter every day. The whole earth is full of his glory. Which means that this is what life is all about. It's about living in the glory of God, living for the glory of God in a way that aligns with the glory of God. That's why God tells his people in Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I am holy. God and his holy glory are what life is all about. Get this, and you'll have moral clarity. Because you'll know that his glory is what your marriage is all about. You'll know that his glory is what your parenting is all about. You'll know that his glory is what work and leisure and entertainment and fun are all about. It's that essential to your life. Get this right. And you'll know why you're here. You'll know how to begin to understand everything else that's here. And you know how to live well with everything else. But get this wrong. Don't see that this is what the universe is filled with. Don't see that this is what the universe is made for. Don't see that this is what you and everyone else around you are meant for. Ignore that this is the reality that you live in daily, constantly. Get this wrong. And you'll make life about something else. And when that happens, you will take this infinitely holy God less seriously. You'll bring him down. You'll think that what he says is one opinion among countless others. You'll think that his directions and his commands are optional. You'll think that his worldview and his values are debatable. You'll think that his promises are both unreliable and inadequate to deal with the problems of living. Get the central point of the universe wrong, and you'll think that you have the right and the ability to evaluate what he says. And so when you come to something challenging in Scripture, you won't ask humble questions like, man, Lord God, how do I live this out? 
how can I enter into holy glory? Instead, you'll ask questions like, do I like this? Do I want this to be true? Does this agree with what my society thinks? Does it line up with how I've experienced life? See, if God is perfectly holy in all that he does, you will love and trust all that he says. You'll want to hear as much as he's willing to tell you. But if God is not holy, if he's kind of like you, just a little bit bigger, you won't put his words in a completely different category. You'll treat them like one more optional way to think among many others. This is the starting point to everything else in the life of faith. It's that the God who reveals himself, who wants you to see him and know him, who goes out of his way to show himself to you, that this one is holy, holy, holy. And that's why there's missions. Because the sad reality is that the people around you don't know that that's what life is about. Your children don't know this, and they need to. Your co-workers don't know. Your spouse often doesn't know. They don't have this sense of living surrounded by the glory of a holy God, and so they live just like Isaiah did, oftentimes like you and I do, in a way that will one day lead to this horrific realization that in the presence of holiness, we suddenly discover how unholy we are. Point two. Isaiah has this amazing vision of God. And he does not respond in any of the ways that you and I have been taught someone would respond in the presence of a holy God. Neither the modern world nor the modern church prepares you for what this experience would be like. See, if you are trained by our world and our church... You'd expect Isaiah to kind of stand there and go, oh, wow, this is so cool. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't say, hey, I I felt myself floating. As I walked toward this bright light, it was was really warm and beautiful. doesn't say that. He doesn't burst into spontaneous praise, close his eyes and start to worship. And he doesn't say, hey, God, I've got this question that's been bugging me for like ever. And I was just wondering, could I? Doesn't say anything like that. Nothing like you and I've been taught to expect. Instead, he says, verse five, woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Whoa, what is that? It's an expression of grief. The prophets would often use that word before calling down a curse on another nation that had been rejecting God or on Israel. Isaiah just pronounced a curse on himself. He's not giving himself a benediction, a good word. He's giving himself a malediction, a bad word. Why is he doing that? He goes on to say that he's lost. The word there means to cease, to be cut off, to be destroyed. Some translations, to be ruined, to be undone. Isaiah is in grief. His life is destroyed. It's over. Why? 
because of two things. His personal uncleanness, his unclean lips, and that he's been living among a people of unclean lips. That he's made a home among unclean people. That he felt comfortable among them, not upset or offended by them. But he fit in just fine, just like one of them. He's been okay living his life surrounded by evil, and up to this moment, it hasn't bothered him. You think, how is that possible? The clue is in how he talks about himself. He does not say that he said unclean things. He doesn't say, oh, I lied a couple of times. I've gossiped and slandered. I flattered when I shouldn't have. I didn't confront when I should. He doesn't focus on any particular thing that he said or in any concrete way that he misused his mouth. He says instead that his lips are unclean. Not the words that came out, but the very lips. That there is something about him, something about himself that's unclean that then impacts and affects whatever he says. He's saying that he says unclean things because he himself is unclean. That he sins, does these particular actions, because he's a sinner in his nature. This is really important. Please please hear this. Many people think that the biggest problem that they have is the wrong things that they do. They think that those particular things then are what define them. That it's those things that make them a bad person. That doing sinful things makes them a sinner. That's backwards. Think about it this way. Your dog barks, wags its tail. Why? Because in its nature, he or she is a dog. So I don't care how long you bark and wag. You're not ever going to turn into a dog. Your dog is already a dog, and therefore it what? It does doggy things. You can bark and wag all you want. You'll never become a dog. Why? It's not your nature. You're a human being, not a canine. And it's our human nature that we are infected by sin. We're descended from Adam. And so we each share in his guilt. We are utterly corrupted from the moment that we're conceived. And you can see that that's true because we each share in the same penalty that Adam got for his guilt. We each die, just like he did. That's our nature as human beings. Paul Tripp's paraphrase of the Westminster Confession of Faith puts this, I think, really well. It says, quote, we are, we are born, quote, utterly disinclined disabled and antagonistic to all that is good and we're wholly inclined to all that is evil let me repeat that we are utterly disinclined we have no interest disabled we are unable antagonistic we hate all that is good and we are wholly inclined to all that is evil in other words we are morally unclean by nature so that what comes out of us is unclean, and so that we are at home among other people who are unclean. And when Isaiah sees God, that's the realization that hits him. He now sees what his life should have been about, that it should have been about God's glory. And at the same time, he realizes that it's not been that because of what he's not been. 
And in that moment, he says, it's game over. Woe is me. I am lost. The reality of that experience hits him so hard. The fact that he is as deeply unholy as God is immeasurably holy. It hits him so hard. He doesn't ask for forgiveness. That's not even on the table in that moment. Isaiah grew up in Israel, familiar with the temple, all the sacrifices, had participated in his faith his whole life. When he sees the reality of who he is in the presence of who God is, when he sees what he should be compared to what he has been, it doesn't even cross his mind that there might be a way to bridge the gap between his unholiness and God's holiness. Instead, from his perspective, it's just not possible. And so the only thing he can imagine is his own destruction, his imminent ruin. He calls down a curse on his head. The world that you and I live in has no awareness of that reality. Neither unimaginable holiness or our true unholy nature and the uncrossable gulf between the two. And so neither holiness nor our sin nature figure into daily life. They're not part of our government's policy decisions. They're not part of how law enforcement thinks. They're not what our social programs aim at or address. They're not thought to have anything to do with societal issues such as racism or poverty. They're not used to craft educational curricula. They don't inform our counseling programs and methodologies. They don't guide our entertainment, our videos, our popular music, our sporting activities, or our video games. Our world is run and influenced by people who have no interest in the holiness of God and no awareness of their own unholiness. Instead, we firmly believe that we can live good lives and create good societies without those two things. We firmly believe that we can solve humanity's problems without taking either holiness or unholiness into account. And for the most part, we're really okay living among people who think like that. Just like Isaiah was. Until he encountered the holy God. And then he knew how wrong he'd been to be okay with the way people were around him. He knew then, point three, that judgment is just as real as holiness and unholiness. Probably don't talk enough about judgment, and I get that. It's uncomfortable. We don't like it personally. Our world thinks it sounds harsh. But part of the clarity that God offers here is the awareness that he is not hands-off in his universe but that he's incredibly active. His holiness is not passive, but he responds in his holiness to people who reject him and reject his glory. And this is another place where moral confusion thrives. Eliminate God's holiness and his judgment, his assessment from your way of thinking, and you no longer have a way of saying that something is wrong. Remove God's objective standard of morality and the fact that he judges things. And now you can't say that what someone did to you is wrong or that they are wrong. But you still had something happen. And so you say what? 
that what they did hurt you. Which is not the same as saying that someone broke a moral boundary that was established by the Creator from within His moral purity. But what you're saying is that you didn't like the way that you felt. That you felt upset, sad, dismissed, unseen, devalued. And because there is no moral category here to consider, it never occurs to you to ask if you should feel upset. See, if you think in moral categories, with moral clarity, you realize that there are times when you should feel upset. Isaiah sees what is true about himself and true about God. He should feel upset. He's not hurt by God's holiness. It'd be completely inappropriate for him to say, God, when I see you like this, it hurts me. He's not hurt by God's holiness. He's convicted. And that's a good thing. God is not hurt by Isaiah's sin or anyone else's. He's offended. What he said in Scripture is just as holy as he is, every last word of it. It's morally pure, coming from a morally holy desire for your and my best interests. So when you reject it, when I reject it, God is not hurt by our rejection. He's offended. And he judges our offense. And not in some kind of future judgment, but he judges now. Now, please be careful how you hear this. Because this is not, as you read through this chapter, it's not the kind of judgment that you will sometimes hear when people will say something like, well, you know, God sent this hurricane to this city to punish them for a certain reason. That is not what God's judgment is like. It's not what he says here. God's judgment is much more pervasive, has much far greater consequences. What is it, verse 9? It's that people will be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Do you see the judgment? It's the judgment that people will live in ignorance. That they won't be able to understand or perceive what is really going on around them. And so people will retain their faculties. They'll still be able to see, still be able to hear the world around them. But they will not be able to make sense of what they see and hear in a way that agrees with what the Holy God sees and hears. They won't be able to know what's true about the world. That it's all about the glory of God. And they'll end up living in a morally confused world. They'll end up living like Isaiah did when he didn't know what was true about himself or the people around him, when he thought he was okay, when he wasn't. They'll live in a morally confused world. God references this in other places, like chapter 5, verse 20, when God says people call evil good and good evil. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. That's the result of God's judgment on the people. It's that they mix up their categories. They don't know the difference between good and evil. They'll be completely convinced that something is good when it's evil and vice versa. They won't be able to tell what is true darkness and what is really light, what's bitter and what's sweet. God judged his people with a loss of all moral clarity. 
And that was Isaiah's ministry. We'll get back in a moment to how he went from being destroyed to having a ministry. But this is the ministry that God gave him. And it's not that Isaiah was supposed to go out and speak in ways that were really difficult to understand. That's not what it means to make someone's heart calloused. In fact, as he preached over the years, people accused him of being way too simplistic. So they said to him in chapter 28, verse 9, Who is it he's trying to teach? To whom is he explaining his message? To children weaned from their milk? To those just taken from the breast? They said he's teaching at a pre-kindergarten level, that they were too sophisticated for what he had to say. And yet they didn't get it. They had eyes to see, but they didn't perceive. Ears to hear, but a heart that couldn't understand. So they mixed up things that were so basic as good and evil. Could no longer tell the difference between things that should have been obvious to them. Why? Because they rejected what God said to them through his prophet. The judgment of God is to say, okay, you don't want to hear what I have to say. You don't want to take to heart that the world is the way that I say it is. You want to elevate your opinion, your idea of how things should be, and say that it's at the same level as me telling you how they are. If that's what you want, then you can have what you want. But then you'll have no ability to understand the world around you. What you'll have is this moral confusion where you don't see the world the way it is, where you can't tell the difference between good and evil, darkness and light, bitter and sweet, because you won't take my word for it. Now make sure you get this. God is not saying here, if you do something wrong, this wrong thing, if you try to confuse things that I've said are clear, if you're intentional about that, then I will judge you at some point later in the future. It's not what he's saying. He's saying the fact that you are confused by things that should be really clear, good and evil, the fact that you're swapping them is the evidence that I've already judged you. It's not that you will be judged in the future for your present moral confusion, but that your present moral confusion is the judgment of God. It's the loss of clarity about what's really true about him that and his world, that is his judgment. And because you and I live in a confused world that embraces confusion, I think I need to be really clear. I'm going to say some things now that are hard to hear. Hard because you may have bought into some of them at one time. Hard because we don't live in a world that's used to saying things like this. But if we're going to be rescued by this God, or if we're going to care about the danger that our friends and our family are in, if we're going to carry his message into this world, we have to see the danger that his judgment is. And so for our sakes, for the sake of our friends, let me be clear. When you see the moral confusion of today, you are seeing the active judgment of God on us now. When people cannot tell a man from a woman After God has told us that he made us male and female, you're seeing the judgment of God. When people don't know what a family is, after hundreds and thousands of years of experience, when it's suddenly possible to experiment with who makes up a family and how many, regardless of the cost to the children, you're seeing the judgment of God. When people pit one generation against another, 
one gender against another, one ethnicity against another, trying to prove that one or the other is better than the other without seeing what God has done in making all people equally valuable to reflect his glory. When you see that confused divisiveness, you're seeing the judgment of God. When people can't tell the difference between resistance, righteous opposition of an oppressive system, when they can't tell the difference between resistance and genocide, murder and rape, you're seeing the judgment of God. When you can't tell the difference between health care and a procedure that ends the health of a child, you're seeing the judgment of God. When the church cannot see that Christian nationalism is built on something other than the Lordship of Christ in order to preserve a certain cultural capital, rather than to promote the mission of Christ in this world, when you don't know the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of humanity, you're seeing the judgment of God. I could go on, you could go on. That's the world that you and I live in, in which anything goes. A society that has no ability anymore to say what is wrong. A society where it's the weakest, the most at risk, who pay. A world that's becoming increasingly fragmented as we experience the judgment of God. That's the message that God said to Isaiah, you go and carry to my people. And Isaiah wants to know, verse 11, man, for how long, O Lord? God says, verse 11, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. For how long? Until people are utterly ruined and destroyed. That's where God's holy righteous, just judgment leads to the removal of all that is unholy. And if that's all this chapter said, that would be crushing. It's not all it says. Because God does more than simply judge when he interacts with his world. Point four, quickly. He's also merciful. Incredibly gracious. In fact, the whole encounter is merciful. Isaiah is not looking for God, not a God like this, when he goes into the temple. But God is what? He's looking for Isaiah. This is our missionary God who is longing desperately for people to find him. He knows that Isaiah does not know his true condition. And so he shows him what he needs in order to grasp reality. What is that? That is pure, holy grace. God didn't need to do that. Certainly didn't need it for himself. Isaiah needed it. Hear this, please. This is counterintuitive. If God is showing you more and more of where you fall short of his holiness, that actually means what? You're coming closer to him. You're getting a better sense of who you are in his presence. That's something to lean into, not run from. It may take a while to leave moral confusion behind. It does for me. A lot of three steps forward, two steps back in my life, sometimes four steps back. 
It might take a lot of time over many years. It might not be perfect in this lifetime. It's not for me. But when God shows you yourself more clearly, embrace that. That's his grace to you. Why? Because God doesn't just want you to see your uncleanness. He wants you to be free from it. The only thing that Isaiah can do when he sees his unholiness is pronounce sentence on himself. But God can do more. God wants to do more. And so when Isaiah finally sees how severe his need is, then verse 6, one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. In God's throne room, in the place where his presence touches the earth, where people come to meet him, there's an altar. There's an altar with a sacrifice burning before the holy God. It's a sacrifice that does two things. It takes away guilt from his people. It takes away the moral corruption, the uncleanness that we have being related to Adam. And it atones for sin. It pays for all the individual things that you and I do wrong. Now think about it. Why is the altar there? It's only because the Holy God wants it there. What does it do? It's not for God. He's holy, holy, holy. He doesn't need it. It's not for the seraphim. They're able to be in God's presence. They don't need it either. The only one who needs it is Isaiah. And there it is, waiting for him. It's there for him so that he can be in the holy God's presence, which tells you that it's there because the holy God wants him there. And so God's holiness makes space for his unholy people by making sure that there is a cleansing sacrifice for them. He is holy in his mercy, holy in his love for his people. And that's for every single person who will hear this God. You may have been under the judgment of God, guilty before him, living in moral confusion. You may be there still now, doing and saying things that are unclean, unholy. Here's the message of Isaiah. There is a God who's merciful, who will graciously point out where you're not okay, but who will then provide a sacrifice for you so that you can be in his presence. If you believe those first three items of clarity, that God is holy, you are not, and that he judges, you would run to this good news. You would run to wherever God offers it to you whether that's in his word, his sacraments, his church. You would devour scripture on your own. You would come to church. You would enter into liturgy. You'd go to CG, to youth group, discipleship group. You would go hungry for his grace. Desperate to get his grace in whatever form he's offering it to you. Because you have a sense of how much you need it. God's holy in his mercy. And he's holy in his justice. Isaiah didn't pay for his sin. But that means then that something else has to. If Isaiah is not to be ruined, something else has to be ruined. You're left wondering what? What could possibly bridge the gap 
between this God whose holiness is literally out of this world and the unholiness of any of his people. If you sin against an infinitely morally pure being, you end up with an infinite moral debt. There is nothing big enough inside the creation to pay, to atone for a debt that is outside of this creation. So where does the sacrifice come from? You get a hint that's, that's still in the future from Isaiah's day. It's something that he can rely on in that moment, but something that has not yet happened in time. Verse 13 ends this way. As the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. You have the picture here? There's a field of stumps. Beautiful trees used to be there. That's the judgment of God on people who rejected his word. But the mercy of God leaves life in the stump. There is future life that will come from the people of God, life that he calls holy. But only one person would ever be that kind of holy who could stand in God's presence. Only Jesus would ever live a life without once rejecting anything that God said. He is the only one whose moral purity matches God's. He deserved to stand in God's presence and not be destroyed, not be ruined. But he traded places with us. That's God's mercy. He took our judgment, our destruction, our ruin, so that we could stand before God where he did. And he made that trade so that we got his moral purity, his cleanness that he earned when he got our judgment. And it's as he offered himself for the sins of his people on the cross that God's justice and judgment and his mercy finally meet. The judgment of God poured out on the Son of God who took your place and mine so that a holy God might be merciful to unclean people like us. Lord Jesus, you have created just an amazing salvation for us. Lord, I pray that you would give us a glimpse of your holiness, conviction of our deep unholiness still. And yet, Lord, I pray that we would experience, taste, feel your forgiveness, your mercy. Lord, that you would raise us up so that just like Isaiah, we would be longing to go for, go for you and to communicate whatever you had to the rest of this world who also needs to hear these things as well. And I pray this in Jesus' name.